I wonder if you caught it uh, while reading Luke 10, but today's text is full of references to the afterlife. In just a few verses, so many of the most uh, squirmy points of Christian doctrine are right there under the surface. We have heaven and hell. We have God's final judgment. We have mention of Satan and demons, divine election, the tension between human responsibility and divine sovereignty. It's all here. And while I'm not going to get into all that this morning, I think it's important to name it. Uh, in Luke 10, we, ha- we have to name it because Jesus' reference to the afterlife are the backdrop behind the whole thing. And if you've any doubt, just keep reading to the next section. The very next verse uh, in Luke is verse 25, and, and it's, a, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, Can you believe that that's how the parable of the Good Samaritan starts? The most famous parable about what what it means to love our neighbor. Uh, We read this as primarily about today. And of course, that is what it's about. But it's also about life after today. Maybe more so, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's the question that begins the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so we tend to gloss over these things when we read the Bible, especially when we read Jesus, ignoring his eschatology, ignoring the eschatology of Scripture, the focus on life after death. We tend to ask ourselves, man, what does this mean for me today? And that's a fine question, but it's plainly not the focus of Jesus and the Apostle Luke here. What's true today is important only insofar as it predicts what will be true tomorrow. And not tomorrow, tomorrow, but the ultimate tomorrow, the great and inevitable tomorrow of the soul after death. In fact, the afterlife is why Jesus came. The restoration he promises is a future restoration. And so anything that we experience of Christ today, any healing, any um, growth, any maturity is the faintest shadow of what he died for. A down payment of the inheritance awaiting those who trust in Jesus. Um, And this isn't just true of Luke 10. If you read the Gospels with the end in mind, you'll see it everywhere. Jesus speaks so frequently about heaven and hell, about judgment and death, about the afterlife. The afterlife is why Jesus came. He came to save his people from their sins. It's also why God the Father sent Jesus, because God the Father did not wish that any should perish. Uh, John 3.16 is one of the most beloved verses in all of Scripture, and it is about life after death. Uh, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That is God's wish that we would not die. Not just that we would not be sad, not just that we would not be poor or lonely, but that we would not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. This is the condemnation that light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. 
Uh, death is the reason why Jesus was sent from God. Uh, death is also the reason why we are sent from God to live as missionaries, which CJ spoke about last week. It's why the 72 were sent out to save people from the judgment after death. Now, the idea of judgment after death was super normal to the original readers of Luke. He didn't have to introduce the idea. He didn't have to be extra sensitive, kind of like we do, because everyone assumed it. It didn't matter whether you were a Jewish reader of Luke or a Greek reader. You believed in an afterlife where one's outcome was related to one's behavior on earth. Um, of course, the Old Testament includes reference to a final judgment, uh, but so did Greek mythology, didn't it? Hades is uh, the land of the dead, and the land of the dead was divided into two spaces, um, a place of blessing and a place of cursing. Um, I can't think of any traditional religion without attention to an afterlife. Buddhism and Hinduism include judgment at the end of life in the form of karma. And of course, Christianity has historically included a final judgment. Modern people don't like this idea. Um, it makes us uncomfortable, but here is where I think Luke 10 can really help us today. This judgment, this woe on the cities, is a judgment we can understand in 2020. Because I feel like Jesus could have spoken these same words of woe in Luke 10 over American cities today. Woe to you, Louisville. Woe to you, Minneapolis. Woe to you, Washington. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. This resonates with me as an American citizen and a Christian. When we think about how much injustice remains in our nation, and not just injustice itself, but a callousness toward injustice, a resistance to seeing it, and this is after centuries of brave Christian witness, particularly in the black church. And we're not just talking about the faith-led civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s. Christian abolitionists extend all the way back to the colonies, and civil rights workers continue today. Additionally, on top of this, we recall that America has experienced not one, but two so-called Great Awakenings two significant periods of revival where many, many thousands of people became Christians, responded to the gospel, and confessed faith in Jesus. Why was that not accompanied with Christian unity across racial lines? Why was that not accompanied with repentance for injustice and oppression? These are mighty works if the mighty works had been done in us, if they were fully received, would it not have resulted in corporate repentance, sackcloth and ashes? Woe to you, America. Woe to us. Mighty works have been done in you, and yet you are still full of injustice. Do we think we will be exalted to heaven? Jesus says, no, you will be brought down to Hades. It feels like the riots are one outworking of that woe. A failure to heed the gospel truth of the Imago Dei, generation after generation. Even from a secular standpoint, this is the reason given behind many of the protests, particularly uh, the excuse for violence. Uh, you've had plenty of time 
right? That's what so many of the protesters are saying. They're, we've waited long enough. We've sent nonviolent protesters before. What has that achieved? Whether you agree, it's a logic that makes sense, that the time has passed for repentance. And then we would add from a biblical standpoint, is this not the result of decades of unchecked injustice and also the judgment of God? This is an expression of God's judgment. Uh, Famously, this was Abraham Lincoln's assessment of the Civil War in his second inaugural address. And so he's beginning his second term as president. The United States is consumed by war. He's earnestly hoping for the end of that war, but he also acknowledges God's sovereignty behind it. He says, fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. And surely that's the prayer of all of us as we see the unrest in our country. We pray that we would move into a new season. But Abraham Lincoln acknowledges, yet if God wills, that it continue until all the wealth piled up by the bondsmen 250 years and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall of unrequited toil shall be sunk, be paid by another drawn with the sword. As was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. I wanted to make this connection between these modern-day acts of judgment on cities today, um, where we are making judgment on cities. I wanted to make that connection with Jesus' prediction, prediction of judgment on cities in Luke 10, because so often we squirm when we hear Jesus or God talk about judgment. It sounds unfair to us. It makes us uncomfortable. But just a moment's reflection on our very own times, our very own judgmental times, helps us see that it is completely fair for Jesus to say this about these cities and about our cities and about us. We live in a time where we care deeply about justice. Uh, And the thing is, justice requires judgment eventually. Justice requires judgment. You cannot have justice without judgment. That's the conviction behind the riots, isn't it? Someone has to pay. And we're going to hold this city hostage until someone pays. That's what's so tragic about Breonna Taylor's death. She died unjustly. Even if her death isn't technically criminal, it is unjust. It is undeserved. And if it wasn't the police officer's fault who fired his weapon in self-defense, and if it wasn't the unit's fault for crashing into an apartment without notice, then it was the court's fault who issued a warrant unjustified, or the police department's fault for getting their facts wrong, or the Supreme Court's fault for giving wide license to police in granting immunity, or decades of unjust policing practice. It was somebody's fault It was someone's, many someone's fault. Who will answer for Brianna's death? Without judgment, there is no justice. People feel that deeply. They're offended by a lack of judgment. Justice requires judgment. We feel this deeply, and the thing is, so does God. 
it is as true for God as it is true for us. Um, I've been teaching a middle school class at my kids' school on doctrine and on the doctrine of God in particular. And we began talking about the attributes of God by talking about the attributes of a square. What are the attributes of a square? Well, you guys hopefully all know this. You might have to sort of uh, re- like think about how to articulate it, uh, go back to high school or middle school. But the attributes of a square are that it's a shape with four equal sides joined by four right angles. Without those attributes, it's not a square. Um, and so some people you'll hear, um, I remember hearing in high school and college and, and, and it being really persuasive or like rocking to me where somebody say, well, they challenge God's omnipotence and his power and saying, well, if God's so powerful, can't he make a different kind of square? Um, and the thing is, if he changes anything about this shape, if he changes the four equal sides, if he changes the right angles, it ceases to become a square. It's a rectangle in this case. If he makes it round, it becomes a circle. It's not a square anymore. So the fact is, no, God cannot make a different kind of square because that is categorically impossible. These are the attributes of a square. It has to be this way. Uh, God's, God's attributes work the same way. Without his attributes, he is not God. Uh, He is one with his attributes. If he's not eternal, if he's not omnipresent, if he's not omnipotent, if he's not self-existent, he's not God. He's something else entirely. And the same thing goes for God's justice. God is necessarily just. He has to be just. If he's not just, he's not God any longer. It is logically, philosophically, existentially, and literally impossible for God to be unjust. And justice requires judgment. It would be wrong for God to not hold humanity accountable for our actions, just as it feels wrong when police officers are not held accountable for their actions. That's how we intuitively know that God is right to judge us, because of our own impulse, our own right impulse to judge other people for wrongdoing. Romans 2.1, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Justice requires judgment. Now, if that was the whole story, we would all be screwed, Right? We would have no hope. But remember John 3. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's what's so different from the disciples going into the cities of Luke 10 and the crowds flooding into the cities today. Protesters today are filling the streets in order to condemn them, to announce judgment, to announce that time is up. It is a ministry of condemnation, just condemnation in many ways, but condemnation nonetheless. Jesus and his disciples filled the streets of Galilee as a ministry of reconciliation. Though they were just as sinful as our cities, just as corrupt, just as oppressive, Jesus came not to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
He was extending grace and forgiveness and healing to these cities. Uh, Jesus summarizes his ministry in Luke 4, 18 to 19. So the book of Luke begins with a summary of Jesus' entire ministry. Jesus opens the book of Isaiah and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and uh, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This was his message to these cities. He didn't come into Capernaum, Chorazin, Bethsaida, or any of these cities condemning them. He came telling them how despite their sin, God still loves them and wants to welcome them back into his care. He was going to make everything right that they had ruined with their sin. And then he performed tons of miracles to prove he was able to do what he promised. Jesus meant what he said. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He fed thousands. He embraced the outcasts. And yet these cities still refused him. And that's the key to Luke 10. This is why Jesus says, woe to you. Woe to you is not a curse. Uh, There are other words in the Greek language if Jesus was wanting to curse these cities. But he's not cursing these places. They have cursed themselves. Which, as an aside, I think is a good way for us to think and talk about the sins of others. Woe to you. Woe to that man. Woe to that woman. To turn our judgment into statements of woe. Uh, We shouldn't speak about the sins of others with self-righteousness, but we should speak about it with sober fear, especially those who have heard the gospel and subsequently rejected it with their mouth or with their actions. When we see people exchange Jesus for tribalism, woe to you. When people exchange Jesus for self-righteousness, when people exchange Jesus for political power, When people exchange Jesus for cultural acceptance, the path of least resistance, it it should cause us to lean back and our eyes to grow wide and to say, woe to you. Rejecting Jesus is a scary place to be. Hebrews 10, 29 and 31. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is the truth and emotion behind Jesus' statement of woe. He's not angry or bitter or frustrated. He is sobered. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. In just a couple chapters, Jesus will warn the disciples when talking about the Pharisees, warning them of their example. He'll say, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. When somebody rejects God knowledgeably, rejects his repeated attempts at extending grace and reconciliation. It is a fearful thing. 
this is what's behind Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I remember I had to read that in high school. Um, needless to say, I'm more mature, hopefully, now than I am in high school, and, and you are too. And so if you had to read it in high school, if that was your assessment of it, I encourage you to go back, uh, get the PDF off the internet, and, and read it again um, as a more mature Christian, as a more mature adult. It's definitely a heavy sermon, for sure. It is a uh, um, fire and brimstone, classic Puritan sermon. Uh, But it's no different than what we see Jesus teaching here. Edwards and Jesus are not condemning sinners. They're not standing over them or judging them. They're just pointing out the obvious. Justice requires the judgment of sin. And we are all sinners deserving judgment. And the thing is, you've just passed on the one opportunity to have your judgment cleared. That's what Jesus is saying to these cities. Your one chance for reconciliation, and you are kicking him out of the city. Are you sure? That means there's nothing between you and judgment except the sovereign hand of God. That's the image that uh, Edwards puts, the sinners in the hands of an angry God. God owes you nothing. He is patient, but his patience is meant to lead to repentance. You are a sinner in the hand of an angry God, And God doesn't wish that you would perish, but he won't hold you forever. That's our prayer of lament earlier. You owe our nation nothing. We owe you everything. Now is the time to repent. Now is the day of salvation. We've got nothing in ourselves to bargain with. Justice requires judgment. If I want to be safe, if I want to be secure, I have to call on the name of Jesus. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We don't often, as citizens, like speak so explicitly about judgment, about the afterlife, about heaven and hell. Uh, but it is the reason that Jesus came. It is the reason that the 72 were sent out. That people would be saved from their sins. Not just in an existential way, not just in a live your best life now way, but in an ultimate sense, so that on the other side of death, you're not left standing on your own merits and righteousness. You cannot survive that. Only clothed in the righteousness of Christ can you survive. And so Jesus, in these woes, he's telling the cities, he's telling the listers, he's telling us, Repent while the kingdom of God is at hand. This is the message of the gospel, that even though justice requires judgment and we are all sinners deserving of judgment, God is extending grace to you. He is offering to take your just judgment and place it on his only son. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in, in him we might become the righteousness of God. That opportunity is available for us. It's free for the taking if you'll give your life, but woe to the one who refuses. Woe to the city who refuses. Jesus isn't cursing these cities. The offer of salvation is still open to them. Repentance is available. He's just following the logic of the gospel, the logic of the kingdom. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. 
And with that logic, Jesus is saying, woe to the one who rejects him who sent me. I encourage you to add woe, to explore woe in your emotions. It's an important sentiment for today. So many people in our culture, uh, in our national conversation, in our local conversation, in everything, are full of rage and indignation and cynicism and bitterness towards the other person, towards the unethical other, the person that they disagree with, the person who they feel is wrong, the person who is wrong. Try feeling woe for them. It's uniquely Christian because we are remembering that justice requires judgment and the culture's judgment, whether that be cancel culture or the judicial system or whatever, that pales next to God's judgment. It is so small. In fact, it is meant to be a sign to point forward to God's judgment and call us and shock us into repentance. And so let injustice, let the other move you to grief, to prayer for their repentance and increase commitment to Jesus on your own behalf and increase commitment to evangelism. Could it be that this judgmental time is the time when some people are the most open to grace? They're the most in need of it because they see the woe everywhere. If this is how we think and feel about those who reject Christ, a heaviness, a sober woe, how should we think about ourselves who have received Jesus if you have received him? Well, Jesus tells us in Luke 10, right after talking about the fearful rejection of these cities, we have the disciples in contrast. And it's a big contrast, a a big tone shift here. In verse 17, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the powers of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And so the disciples return with joy, and Jesus affirms their joy. Mission should excite us, um, but he takes issue with the source of their joy. Their joy finds its source in their newfound power. But Jesus encourages them to instead rejoice in their citizenship in heaven. That's the metaphor Jesus is using. Names written in heaven is like a divine census listing out all the citizens of God's kingdom. And they should rejoice that their name is listed on that divine census. Uh, Jesus doesn't deny their power. He gave it to them. Uh, In verse 19, it's a shocking verse. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. That is a lot of power. That is a lot of authority. Being a citizen of God's kingdom comes with a great commission and sufficient power to carry out that great commission. And that's super cool. It's something we should believe and embrace and wield with confidence. But deeper than that, 
The place where our joy should rest is the fact that we are citizens of God's kingdom. Jesus wants us to rejoice not in the promising of our potential, not in the promising of our flourishing, that full of the Spirit we can live effective, productive lives, winning arguments, bringing change, speaking truth to power, tearing down opposition, even casting out demons. Those things are true, but nevertheless, Jesus wants to rejoice, us to rejoice in the more basic fact, the more foundational truth that we are saved at all. Because none of us deserve to have our names written in heaven. None of us deserve salvation, adoption, reconciliation. None of us deserve to be citizens. We are all immigrants in God's kingdom. And not just immigrants, but former rebels, former terrorists to his world. And if that weren't enough, we weren't even impressive terrorists. It's not like Jesus recruited us because we were good at attacking him good at anything important to God's kingdom. In verse 21, in that same hour, Jesus rejoices in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. We were not numbered among the wise and understanding. If you believe in Jesus, there is a humiliation that comes with that. It is God's gracious will to reveal himself to little children. I am a little child. And so when we see the blindness of others, we should marvel. I am a little child, and, my, and I see. I was not wise and understanding. Why do I get to hear the things that I hear? Why do I get to see the things that I see? Verse 23, turning to the disciples, he says privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Do you feel joy, incredulous joy, about your citizenship in God's kingdom? Are you baffled by your salvation? Or do you feel entitled? Are you humbled that God considers you one of his people, that he personally hand-wrote your name in the register of God's kingdom? Especially as you look out at cities and nations and peoples and neighbors who have rejected Jesus, our response to that should be, thank you, Father, that my name is written in heaven, that you count me one of your citizens, Why? I'm nothing. I was a sinner just like these others. There is nothing better about us, but Jesus revealed himself to us. In verse 22, Jesus tells us that he is the reason we can see him. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. We should be baffled by that. Think to yourself, where would you be without Jesus? Matthew 7, narrow is the way that leads to the kingdom, but wide is the way that leads to destruction. The road to destruction, to hell, is this huge, massive highway 
16 lane highway and I can honestly picture myself on quite a few of those lanes. There are a number of very concrete images that I can picture if I were not a follower of Jesus. How amazing that God plucked me up and set me on the narrow path. It's a hard path. My body is often sore from walking it. But isn't it amazing that I'm on it? How amazing that God opened my eyes to see my sin and see his grace to believe it. I'm no different than my brother, than my neighbor, than my enemy. And yet I believe. This humble gratefulness is so important if our witness and activism is going to remain Christian. If we are going to be uniquely Christian in the public sphere, we have to be humbly grateful for our salvation. Your standard secular evangelism today, everybody's an evangelist. Everybody is advocating for something. But whatever its cause, if it's without grace, if it's without the gospel, it is typically merciless. It is not humble. It is not thankful. It is instead all about power. And Christians should evangelize differently. We should be activists differently. When we only rejoice in our power and authority, when we only rejoice in the truthfulness and effectiveness of our message, we forget that we were once on the other side of this conversation. We fail to see ourselves in our ideological enemy. But we were lost. We were ignorant. We were blind. We were wicked. We were hateful. And now we're not, or not as much as we were, only because of the grace of Christ. And if we forget that, we will stand over others as if we discovered this truth on our own. We will cease finding our righteousness in Christ and instead find our righteousness in our power or our knowledge or our rightness or our privilege or our ethics. And we will misrepresent Jesus. And ironically, we will lose the power that we're boasting in. We we won't be powerful. Which really leads to the Second reason humble gratefulness is essential to our witness, not only does it make us uniquely Christian, it also keeps us going. Without humble gratefulness for my own salvation, I won't be able to sustain hope for the salvation of anyone else. Uh, This is one explanation for the complete breakdown of politics in our country. Uh, Democrats and Republicans don't even talk to each other. We have spent millions of dollars creating different news channels because we can't handle going to the same place. We can't speak to one another. We think it's hopeless. We can't imagine how one can think differently than us. The only explanation is that the other side is evil or stupid. And and I would say that I'm sort of uh, being overdramatic, but there are numerous studies that have shown that where people of one political persuasion literally think that people of a different persuasion are evil and stupid. And actually, the thing is, Christians agree. Sin makes us evil and stupid. Not totally, but significantly, in real ways. But it also teaches us that God reveals himself to little children He saves people who are sinners, 
what gives me hope that San Franciscans can and will respond to the gospel, that Americans can and will respond to the gospel, that crazy family members can and will respond to the gospel. What gives me hope is that I did. I responded. And if I responded to the gospel, others can too. What gives me hope that the image of God in others is worth fighting and dying for, that justice is worth advocating for, that it can affect meaningful change. It's because Jesus fought and died for the image of God. He fought and died for justice, and it worked. It resulted in meaningful change. Micro changes across uh, the history of Christianity, and then ultimately eternal changes in us in the saints who have died and who now have seen Jesus and are like him. We cannot lose the memory of grace, the wonder that we are called children of God, citizens of his kingdom, friends of Jesus. The power is great. The salvation means more. And so if you find yourself growing weary of Christian living and faithfulness, if you find yourself growing weary of how easily others reject truth, If you find yourself marked by cynicism, bitterness, anger, hopelessness in this world, take an hour and reflect on your own gracious salvation. Think about how unlikely it is that you are a citizen of God's kingdom. Think about grace until you feel joy. Take an hour and reflect on how amazing it is that you have been given eyes to see the salvation of God. Prophets and kings long to see what you see, what you have opportunity to see, what's all around you all the time. Uh, Maggie and I regularly mark like driving our kids around San Francisco. The Bay Area is just gorgeous over and over again. You're just floored by its beauty. Uh, We were driving home from Fort Funston and you're just driving along the beach and you see cliffs and you see Golden Gate Bridge and you see flowers and plants. It's, it's just so very beautiful. And my kids, it just goes right over their head. They don't even notice it. It's really normal to them. They're asking to play video games or something stupid. Uh, and we just are baffled because we grew up in places that weren't especially pretty. Like they were born in Houston, Texas with just retention ponds everywhere. That's that's the extent with a little tiny fountain like out of the retention pond to make you think it's not one. In the same way, our eyes have been open to grace. We're able to see Jesus. We're able to know the Trinity, to experience communion with him, with three and one. We're able to see the plan of God. We're able to see his design. The fruit of the Spirit is readily available to us. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control. Philippians 4, whatever is lovely, think on these things. We are able to do that and it's not pie in the sky. It's real because it's ours. Read God's word, read good theology, read church history, spend time with saints, and let it lead to a wonder which motivates you to faithful living, to go into these cities, not to condemn them, but to offer the hope of resurrection and forgiveness. If you're not a Christian or you're not sure, don't delay. Um, Destruction is real. 
judgment is real. There is no justice without judgment. Wide is the road that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way to eternal life. Eternity hinges on your relationship to Jesus. That is ultimately the difference between the cities and the disciples, is one rejected Jesus and one did not. Justice requires judgment. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus come came, not for today, but for tomorrow. He died so you might live. Do not reject him. Let's pray. Dear Father, I'm reminded of the uh, old, old-timey put-down uh, the accusation that someone is so heavenly-minded there are no earthly good, uh, that one could think so much about heaven um, that they're worthless to their neighbors and peers created for heaven. And I understand like what that's about and what that's for, but if we think as Jesus thinks, if we follow him, if we listen to his words, he was very, very heavenly minded. He came so that we would not perish, but we would have eternal life. Father, would you help us to walk through our days with that top of mind and that it would create in us a tremendous gratefulness, a humble gratefulness that we are registered in God's kingdom, that our names are written in heaven. They are secure. They are safe. Would we just be baffled by that? And Father, would it also create for us a heaviness when we survey a world where many people have rejected Christ? Would we feel woe for them? And would we be motivated to go and speak, to do good. Um, And not just good generically, but good which would be a signpost to the offer of grace in Jesus. Would we be an evangelistic people, uniquely Christian in our hopefulness, in our joy, in our humility, in our zeal, and in our perseverance, our hope for even the worst of people, Uh, the worst of cities, the worst of the world. We love you. We are thankful for you and for our salvation. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.